It is great to have the opportunity as a congregation to have access to media, access to training, and access to some materials that we can actually put into the hands of our neighbors. And as we've been signing you up, you've been coming and asking us some questions. You've been turning in that little puzzle piece. You know, after church, we're going to have some folks still ready to talk to you about this. Then we'll start our training tonight. If you have any questions, we'll hopefully answer all that. Our goal is for everybody to do this. Dorm room, you can do this. We can give you a DVD. You can play it on your computer. You can download to your iPad or to uh, one of the... um, one of the other mobile devices that you might have, we can, you can show it on a laptop. You can use a DVD player that's portable. There are a lot of ways that we can do this. Our goal is for everyone to say, we'll do this. You may want to do it really, really small. And you may say, look, I've got a particular family member that doesn't know Christ. I'm just going to do a, a thing just to bring my family together. I've got a spouse that doesn't know Jesus. I've got a child. I've got a parent. I've got a brother or a sister that doesn't know the Lord. And so I want to commit my time to do this. I've got a neighbor. All of us know people, co-workers, fellow students, friends and family that do not know the Lord. When we contemplate what is going to happen to them if they die without Christ, what is going to be the outcome of that? What will be the burden we bear as we see that? And so I want to encourage you to say today, just very simply, we'll do this. We'll give our home to it. We'll do the best we can. This is our first time to try, but we'll do the best we can. Come tonight and on the training dates. Tom and I, Kevin Roberts, we're going to work together with you to help you get ready to answer your questions. We're going to give you some materials. So we're really looking forward to everyone doing it. The question is not, why should I do this? The question is, in light of the lostness of our own neighborhoods, why shouldn't we do this? What would hinder me? So sign up. Join in. We're going to have a great time together. Join me now in the Sermon on the Mount. We're moving into the third beatitude today. And as Jesus is teaching, he is letting his disciples know something very urgent. He's preparing them for a mission. He's preparing them to see themselves in a particular way to be conscious of something very important. As they follow Him, this work of salvation, this work of regeneration, God changing their hearts, He is wanting to give them a particular awareness. He's making sure that they're becoming aware of a very important aspect of their lives. That there is to be growing in them an increasing awareness. An awareness that should be in them as He speaks and should be in us as we hear from Him. And that is an awareness that God has placed each of us where we are strategically. Your workplace, God designed before you were born for you to be 
right where you are today. He placed you strategically with the people you're working with. Your house in your neighborhood. Do not think that God is not sovereign over where you're going to live. You may have thought you had all the design, but God has planted you as a missionary in your house. He knew exactly where you were going to be. He knew exactly what equipping that you needed. And as a follower of Christ, he has strategically put you in the school that you attend. He has put you in the college that you're going to. He has built the circle of people that you hang out with. He's drawn them to you. He has designed relationships with your coworkers with your friends, and with your neighbors for a strategic, particular purpose. And this is it, for you to shine. He has set you. Remember, he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Somebody set the city there. God chose to set Kingsville Baptist Church right here. He chose the location. He chose the design. He chose the neighborhood. He chose to stick a Walmart across from us. Procter & Gamble beside us. He chose all of this strategically to set us on a hill so that we would not be hidden. People would pass by here and look and say something about this church. When people go by, they're not silent. They talk. The neighbors know. They speak. Co-workers have conversations about you when you're not there. Your classmates... Talk about you when you're not around. Your neighbors, when they get together around their grill and you're not there, they have a conversation about you. Why? Because in your classroom, in your dorm room, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in this place, God has specifically set us in the place that we are in for one purpose, to shine. That's why we're here. And in that shining to be representative of who God is, what He has done for us, and where He has taken us. From the neighborhoods to the nations, God has appointed everywhere we go. He has appointed for us to be lights. Listen to His words in Matthew 5. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. Do you realize that God has a host of lampstands that He stands you on through the course of every day? The lampstand of traffic. People know you in your car. They know how you drive. They know those gestures. The lampstand of lines that you stand in waiting at cash registers, in banks, at the DMV. God has a host of lampstands that every day He sets you, you, on. He sets you on the lampstand of a classroom as a teacher or student. As a laborer in your job 
you're on a lampstand. When you pull into your garage, your whole house is on a lampstand and all your neighbors are looking. God has designed everywhere you are, everything you do, as a lampstand moment. And one of the things that He wants us to do as you begin filling out your outline is He wants to develop within us a consciousness of shining in every location, at the ballpark, at the ball game. When you're rooting for your team or rooting against the other team, you're on a lampstand. Everywhere you go, everything you do as a believer, God is constantly placing you right onto a lampstand. And He says to the world, look, This is what I make. These are the products of my salvation. And every one of those places we are called to shine. And what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he is teaching the underlying character. He's teaching the essential elements, the primary ingredients to a light that shines to the glory of God. The first element we learned a couple of weeks ago was spiritual poverty and we saw a picture that kind of pictured that for us and we saw that brokenness and humbling of the circumstance of the person who sees their spiritual poverty and then we came uh, for two weeks and saw the sorrow that comes with it when we when we grieve when we have sorrow over our sinful condition and the sinful condition of the world Then he comes into the third beatitude and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the things that God is developing in the Sermon on the Mount through Christ's teaching is to develop a consciousness of shining in every location. Everywhere. When you're on the phone with a telemarketer, you're on a pedestal shining the gospel. Everywhere. All the time. There is never a moment that someone on earth or someone in heaven is not looking at your shining. And so there has to be within us the development of a genuine consciousness that I have a job to shine everywhere I go. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You're shining now. Right now. God has stood you up on a pedestal. Not a pedestal of worship. Not a pedestal of adoration. But the pedestal that gives light to those around. And so we can't Get away from that as believers, as followers. And so Jesus is driving that home and He's telling them these are the essential characteristics. So we go to our outline to the second part that He's calling us to, through the new birth, be aware of and cultivate a character that shines in contrast to the darkness. Now I want to give you a little background on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is given at a time of great messianic expectation. They 
were waiting for a Messiah. By the time Jesus is an adult, Israel has been in bondage for over 600 years. Our nation is barely over 200 years old. We're moving toward the 250 mark, creeping slowly there. Some of us get upset if we have one bad administration. We think it's a grief to endure four or eight years of an administration. And we all get out of whack and we talk and we say, well, I can't wait till the election. We say all kinds of things. Whichever way you go, whether you did that under the current administration or you did that under the last administration, we think that these four-year stints are like an eternity. They had been in bondage for six hundred years. First to the Babylonians and then to the Persians, and then to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. And they had been in that bondage, and they were waiting on somebody to come and deliver them. And so Jesus is speaking to them, getting them ready to know that He is the Messiah, and they are the ones who will carry His light into the future, and into the nations, and into their neighborhoods. And so He's teaching them what it is going to be like to be his follower, what the redeemed life looks like. And so he's saying there is a particular character that's in contrast to all this around us. And that, con- that, that character that leads to contrast is a gift by way of the new birth. Now, in that culture of waiting on the Messiah, their theology came out of the Old Testament. And especially during this period of time, their theology came out of the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophecies of deliverance. The prophecies of one day a Messiah coming and setting them free. And so when you get into the Sermon on the Mount, all of this language that is there is actually hearkening back primarily to the Messianic passages in Isaiah 40 through 66. And so there's one particular word that was used a lot in those passages. We read it earlier when the service began from from Psalm 37. And it said, The meek shall inherit the land. There at the very end of our reading from Psalm 37. In the Old Testament they had a word. Now, I'm going to tell you the word, but it won't mean anything to you, but it, just so we can have a handle on it, it was awon. Okay, that's it, awon. And it's a strange word. And the word was so complex that its meaning could only be rightly determined by the context in which it was presented. It was so complex that when the Greeks translated the Old Testament into Greek, there's a book called the Septuagint. And that is a book where they took the Hebrew of the Old Testament and they translated it into Greek so that Greek speakers, Greek readers, Greek listeners could understand the Old Testament. And so when they came to this word, I won't, it was so complex that they had to divide it into two different words in Greek. They had to take the old Hebrew word and they had to make it into two Greek words. Well, guess what? The first time it's used is in the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word that we learned meant to crouch as a beggar. 
The second time that that word is translated into Greek, it is translated the way that we get in the third beatitude in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. In the first beatitude, the emphasis of this old Hebrew word was the emphasis of a crouched dependence. Utterly dependent on someone else. And when the context had that, then that's what they would translate it as. But there was another meaning that came from that Old Testament word. Where the first translation and in the first beatitude is translated poor, poor in spirit. And the idea there was dependence. The second way that it was translated in Matthew 5.5, 5, was the idea, listen carefully, of the word submission. <laughs> we don't like that word. In fact, we think that the idea of submission is a word of weakness. In the mixed martial art, that's what they're trying to get their opponent to do, is to come to a moment of submission. It's called tapping out. It's the point of defeat or failure in most people's eyes. But in this context, it's very rich with meaning. And so my goal today is to help you understand the core meaning of this character and the core way that it was used in Matthew 5, 5. So that when you walk out the door today, you can understand what does the word meek really mean and how can I take that home with me? How many of you know what the word idiom means? Does anybody know what the word idiom means? i got a few takers. They're usually students, college students, professors, or English teachers. An idiom is a group of words together that have a meaning totally different from the group of words themselves. Like, we could say, that's really cool. And in one context, it could mean standing in a refrigerator. And in the other context, it means something very admirable. But we would have to have the context to understand if we were coming into English and didn't grow up with it, we'd have to have a... Did you know that we have animal idioms? We do. A man that eats a lot, we say, he eats like a, a pig or a horse, right? I love Dennis the Menace, the little one-frame cartoons that used to come out years ago. There's Dennis sitting at the table with his family and two guests are at the table and in front of the guests are two plates but no silverware. And Dennis's father looks at, his, at Dennis and says, Dennis, why didn't you put silverware in front of the boss and his wife? And Dennis said, well, Dad, yesterday you said for Mom to prepare because he eats like a horse. I didn't figure a horse uses a fork, spoon, or knife. So there was an embarrassing moment. He eats like a horse. How about somebody who doesn't eat much and they'll say he eats like a bird? We, we have animal idioms. That when somebody says eats like a bird, you have to have a context for that. How about somebody who has reflexes like a cat? Now you drop a cat and he lands on his feet and he's really agile. Stubborn as a... Yeah. If somebody's going to be testing on you, what animal do they call you? The guinea pig. You're the guinea pig for this. Blind as a, busy as a, quiet as a, sick as a, sly as a, 
If we're going to keep working on something, they said you're going to beat a dead. The outcast in the family is known as the black. We have animal idioms, don't we? And we use them all the time. So when somebody throws an animal idiom at us, we immediately can contextualize it and say, that is a descriptor of a person. Believe it or not, when Jesus throws the idiom out, gentle, in Matthew 5, 5, he's actually using an animal idiom from his day. And if you didn't understand that animal idiom, it would be very hard for you or I to grasp it And to say, what does he mean when he says the word weak? Now, before I give you the animal idiom, I want to give you its opposite. You know, you can have animal idioms and then you can have the opposite in another animal idiom so that you can refer to one or the other as the opposite of one another. You say, somebody's blind as a bat, and then you you say, he's got eyes like a... Hawk, okay? So you have the opposites there, right? You know that a hawk can see, I mean, he's flying up in the air, and like a mile, he can see the little mouse moving around, and he gets it. And so you have these sayings. The opposite tells you a little bit about what the other means. In the Old Testament, throughout the period of the kings, starting before then with some things said by Moses back in the time of Pharaoh, Going all the way until Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7, you have an animal idiom that's very important. And that animal idiom is stiff-necked. It was used of Pharaoh. It was used of Israel in rebellion. It was used of kings who would not do the will of God. It was used of the people who would not obey God when God would tell them something to do. They were stiff-necked. Now, an animal idiom of stiff-necked was, you got this ox who's out there with you plowing the field and so you got the guy that's running the plow back in the old day how many of you've ever plowed behind an animal is there some goodness raise your hand up you need applause okay Woo! they plowed behind an animal that's awesome okay those of you who plowed behind an animal you know what the word jihaw means don't you that's, that's where you're getting your right and your left with your animal. And so you're plowing behind that animal, and you got a G-haul with them. And that is you give them a little bit of right or a little bit of left to guide them. You get to the end of the row, you got to work them around and start back on the next row. A stiff-necked animal was one that wouldn't G-haul. Haven't you ever heard that phrase, those two people don't G-haul? That means they do not cooperate. One of them or the other or both of them are stiff-necked. But what would happen is they would get to the end of the row. And they'd be trying to get that animal right or left to make the turn to come back. And, and the animal was stiff-necked. He wouldn't turn. He'd just keep going straight. He'd be plowing the neighbor's yard in a couple of minutes. He'd be plowing down into the creek so that he could get a drink of water. He'd be plowing over toward, he'd head straight back to where his little place was that he stayed in the barn so he could get some food. He was stiff-necked. He's just going to go wherever he wanted to go. And so there was a word called stiff-necked. It was used from the time of Moses all the way through the death of Stephen to describe people who would not submit. This word that is given to us here is a Greek word, praus. Now that probably means absolutely nothing to you, but it does mean it meant the opposite of stiff-necked. It was used 
of a colt, a horse that had been broken from being wild so that it could be ridden, so that it could pull a cart, so that it could do work and be useful to its owner. It was used of an ox that would do what the plowman said when he would say, go right, the ox would pull right. When he would say, go left, the ox would pull left. It was the opposite of stiff neck. It meant something that was surrendered. When Jesus describes true conversion, He says it begins with spiritual poverty. It continues with spiritual mourning over one sin and the sins of others. But the outcome of that is a submission to a master. Something was necessary for this to happen. Letter A, a Copernican revolution through the new birth had to come. Now what is a Copernican revolution? Well, Copernicus was a guy who lived a long time ago, back when everybody thought that the whole universe was actually going in circles around the earth. They thought that the whole world was the center of the universe. They thought that the sun spun around the world. They thought that the stars spun around the world. They thought the world was still, and everything else was moving around it. And so, that was the thought of the day during Copernicus's time. And he began observing the stars and watching them, and seeing things, and measuring, and he came up with an understanding that the truth was not that the earth was the center and everything was going around it, but that the sun was the center of our solar system, and that the earth was going around it. So revolutionary was this that people began to persecute him horribly. He was frowned on by the church. He was frowned on by the scientists. People thought he was crazy. But he had a revolutionary idea. He said, you know what? Everything doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around the sun. Now, a Copernican revolution in your heart is the day that you find out that it is not about you. The Copernican revolution for your heart is the moment when you realize everything is not made to go around me. It is not about me. That's what happened to this ox. You see, this ox finally came to realize when he would be called Pros, he was the one who realized it wasn't about him. Something in the breaking of him would make him finally understand three things. First, a new center of importance. The importance was not in the ox, it was in the farmer. When we have a Copernican revolution, is when our new birth makes us able to see that it is not about me, it's actually about Jesus Christ. That everything is about His glory and the glory that He gives to the Father. And so there's this change in the center of importance. It moves from here in me, thinking I'm the most important thing here, My happiness is most important. My satisfaction is most important. My goals are most important. And moves out to where somebody outside of me, this master that's driving the ox, he's the one who's important here. And so something else came with that, a new center of authority. 
what he says goes. If he says G-I-G, if he says haul, I haul. If he says right, right, left, left, stop, stop, go, go. He is the authority. I'm not. What made this ox usable, what made this horse useful, was that suddenly there was a shift from the center of importance being in the animal to the center of the importance being outside of the animal. Don't know how much that animal understands, but when he's broken, he acts differently. And that's the way it is with us. One of the key ways that you and I shine is when we're finally broken. When finally every last one of us looks to Jesus Christ and says, whatever you say. That's what the world will be shocked by. That's what shining will look like. This whole group of people who confess Christ here, coming down to God and saying on their knees, whatever you say, I'll do it. That's what praus means. The sinner of importance is not in here. It's in Christ. The center of authority is not in here. It's in Christ. Third thing is there is a new center of understanding. This is the thing that rocked my world this week and has been churning in my heart and making me realize what a complete idiot I really am. I'm sorry to say it that way, but that's how it feels. Here is the deal. Here is this... Here is this Ox, he's out there plowing. Here's this mule out there plowing. Alright? And there's a farmer back there. And the farmer's, he's riding that plow and he's guiding it and he's giving the G's and the hauls and the halts and the goes and giving water and giving food and doing all the things to take care of this animal. He's the one. Listen carefully. There are some things that that ox cannot understand. He doesn't understand that there's seven members in a household whose life depends on that ground being broken, that wheat being sown, and that harvest coming so that they will not starve to death. You see, the ox doesn't understand that. He can't sit there and reckon with his master. Hey, master, I get it, man. Here's the deal. We're plowing this field. And as we plow this field, you're going to plant the the seed and the wheat's going to come up and the blossom's going to come and then the the wheat itself will form and you're going to harvest it and then I'm going to thresh it by walking in circles for a couple of weeks, threshing it out, munching on it every now and then because the Lord said don't muzzle the ox that threshes. And I'm going to do all that and it's going to be great and your family's going to survive because of what I did. My brothers and sisters, we have no idea what is dependent on our obedience. There are things that we cannot understand. You see, here's how we like to think of it. We like to think, here's a, here's a dumb ox, and here's me. That old dumb ox, and then here's God, just a little above me. No, 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 no. Here's a dumb ox, here's me, and here's God. Just like that ox cannot understand the outcome of his fruitful labor or his lack of it, God our Father says, 
My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above yours. My brothers and sisters, here's the deal. Some of us want to premise our obedience on figuring out God. And when we can't figure Him out, do you know what we do? We become stiff-necked and we head back to the corral. And we fail to obey because we can't understand why God wants us to work so hard. When that ox is out there in the summer heat and he's pulling that plow and breaking clods, and that the, the one who's back... Listen, Jesus put it this way. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Jesus' yoke is still the yoke of servitude. It is still the yoke of submission. It is still the yoke of obedience. But it is being done by a Master who loves you infinitely. Our challenge... And this is the thing I'm really wrestling with is sometimes we do not obey because we think we know better than God. Have you ever done that? This means yes. I have. I don't know how many times I've known better than God, but I've done it. I thought I was really smart. And the truth is, that I am dumber in comparison to God than that ox is in comparison to his master. Way dumber. Yet I will look at God and tell him no. When God says to us, keep your covenant, stay in your marriage, love your spouse, when the God's covenant tells us in His love and grace He's going to sustain us, even though He calls us to go to Nepal and live in the mountains. When God speaks to us and says, I'm going to take care of you there. I'm going to do what needs to be done through you. Whatever it is He calls us from the simplest thing in the home and in the marriage to the most complex thing out in the mission field and all points in between, God knows best. And the lack of submission in the church universal is staggering. We have 16 million Southern Baptists, 10 million of whom we can't find on any given Sunday. And so often, most of us think we're smarter than God. We'll never put it that way. But we do practice it. By our being stiff-necked when He commands. Now there are two more things behind this. Let her be a character that is observable. It is obvious to the world watching us that we are or are not obeying God's Word. That's just really clear. People see it. They know basic things about the Bible and they know enough when we're not doing what the Master says to look at us and we are observable. That's why God's putting us on these lampstands. He's going, here's your lampstand, here's your lampstand, here's your lampstand, here's your lampstand. And every day, in a thousand ways, placing us so that we can submit and give Him glory. And the outcome is more phenomenal than this ox not knowing that this crop he's sowing is going to spare this family from their starvation. We're 
often unaware that the message that we're giving is going to save people from eternal damnation. And He put us on a pedestal, a lampstand to give light. It's observable. And letter C, it's relational. This is a relationship between me and Jesus. I'm submitting to Him. Not to rules, not to church regulations. I'm submitting to Jesus. It is relational because He's my Master. He's got the one, He's the one who put the yoke on me because I wanted it. He's the one that leads me. But my brothers and sisters, I want to share something with you today. Every one of us here today is under a yoke. Some yoke somewhere is guiding our lives today. It's either the yoke of our lust, the yoke of our passions, the yoke of our own will, the yoke of our own desires, or it's the yoke of Jesus. But every one of us today is under a yoke. Jesus is the only one who can honestly say to us this word, my yoke is easy and my burden light. Because the end to which Jesus is working is so different than all other yokes. Now, here's what he does in the end. And I want to give this to you quickly. We'll flesh this out more as we talk about the kingdom. Letter three, a consequence that makes every sacrifice worthwhile. You see, there is a consequence to this redeemed life. The consequence is given to us in the second part of the verse. Blessed are the meek, submissive. These are those folks who are under the control of their master and his authority. What's going to happen to them? For they shall inherit the earth. He's going to give three things here. An inheritance that gives security. How many of you have seen this? Either on the internet or in person. There's a big RV or a really fine truck. And on the very front of it, it says, Spending my children's... Alright, have y'all seen that? Some of y'all may have it. I'm not putting down on you. I think it's funny. But you know what I'm talking about? Spending my children's inheritance. Listen, when Jesus was on the cross, God could have put a sign on Him. And it would have said, Purchasing my children's inheritance. You see, Jesus is offering you something He bought. He's offering to buy you and to give you His own inheritance. See, Jesus is the heir of everything. Guess who gets it all in the end? Jesus. Guess who the universe belongs to? Jesus. Guess who's going to run the whole show at the end? Jesus. And He has bought you and offered to bring you into an inheritance that gives you security no matter what you own on this earth. He wants to give you a real, lasting, eternal security. I was talking with a family the other day and they made a joke about... (laughs) They said... Yeah, there's no trailer hitches on hearses. There's not. You can't take it with you. But I want to tell you something. You can store it up. An eternal inheritance. The second thing he teaches us, and we'll get into that as he fleshes it out later, an inheritance that promises satisfaction. One of the things that Psalm 37 is talking about, that this is taken from, is people who are satisfied in God. Isaiah 55 gives us an opportunity to see, why do you spend on that which does not satisfy? Come and buy wine and meat and milk without cost. He's offering us eternal satisfaction. And then finally, an inheritance that grants significance. I was reading the internet the other day, and it said the heiress of a particular huge conglomerate had been killed in an accident. Very sad. And so the question was, who's going to get what she had coming? And she had this huge fortune, unbelievable amount of money coming to who's going to get her inheritance 
And so there's a little fight over, you know, who's going to get that? Who's, who's the rightful heir to lay hold of this? And everybody wanted to get their significance through being able to be named through that. She had her significance by being named heiress of this huge corporation and all its worth and all of its funding. Her significance was just plastered everywhere because of how much she was inheriting. My brother, my sister, our significance is in the one we know and in the promises that he has made. Our significance is tied to eternity and our walk with Jesus. If you're looking for security, satisfaction, and significance, you're not going to find it in the things of this world. You're going to find it when you put Jesus' yoke around your neck and you do what He says. That's it. A minute ago, I talked about animal idioms. And people look at us and say, he's like a horse, he's like a bird, stubborn as a mule. One of these days, the only words that are ever going to matter are going to be the words of God. It won't matter what our friends say, it won't matter what our relatives say, it won't matter what our parents say, it won't matter what our children say. There's going to be a moment coming and there's going to be a descriptor. A descriptor. Someone's going to use something like an animal idiom to describe me. And I need to ask you, as I ask myself, if Jesus looked at me in my eyes right now and He was going to use one of two descriptors for me, would he say to me, Blessed are you meek? Or would he say to me, Why are you so stiff necked? If Jesus was to address you personally this minute, what would he say? What would he say? One of the things that has to happen is we have to realize what regeneration in the new birth really means. You see, when Jesus steps into my heart and saves me, the Bible says he changes my heart. And what he does is he enables me to be me. He enables enables me to be broken from my old ways. He enables me to be pros. He makes me want to submit. Some of you are here today and you have been fighting Jesus' yoke. He's called you to something. He's told you something. He's made it clear. And you're bucking it. He pulls left, you go right. He pulls right, you go left. And you know what's happening. You know that you're miserable. There's no peace in your heart. There's no order to your life. 
And it is so beautiful to hear the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen, learn from me. Hear it, for I am meek. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ applied the word submissive to himself. Why? Because he took his father's yoke long before He called me to take His. His Father's yoke was heavy in the garden where Jesus, coming to grips with the fact that He was being made sin, He who knew no sin, He was becoming sin, and He begins in such a strain with the yoke of God that what happens, it's not just sweat anymore. Blood begins to flow out of the vessels because the blood pressure is so high as He wrestles with the yoke of God. But in His prayer, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. How many times have we prayed that, but we failed to pray what Jesus said in the end? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the moment when the heaviness of the yoke becomes the sweetness of task completed. Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph over His foes. He arose the victor from the dark domains and He lives forever. With who? His saints to reign. He arose. That was not coming until He wore His Father's yoke in the garden and said, not my will. My brothers and sisters, that we would flood the altar today and say this one prayer with Jesus, not my will, but Thine be done. Would you stand? Would you come? Come to Jesus. Every other yoke is fruitless. Every other yoke is harmful. Every other yoke is eternally dooming. But Jesus' yoke is the yoke of a loving Savior who has worn a yoke first. Learn from me, Jesus says, for I have worn the yoke of my Father. And I am humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your soul. You see, at the end of the journey, for those who would not wear Jesus' yoke, whatever yoke they wore, they'll never rest. Hell will be a place where there's no rest. The Bible says there's no rest for the wicked. And so hell will be a place where there's one thing that will never happen. You'll never rest. But in heaven, for those who will wear the yoke of Jesus, Rest, rest, rest. Would you come to Jesus today? Those of you who already know Him, would you come and maybe kneel down and say, not my will, but Thine. Those who've never given their lives to Christ, today's a great day to say, Jesus, put Your yoke on me. Save me. I trust that You died for my sins, that You were raised from the dead. I believe. Save me. Would you do that now? Even this moment. As God moves your heart, would you come?